job, Tommy. <laughs> Thank you. That was Tommy's first time to sing at Victory. So I think we should give him another hand, yeah. <laughs> Brought his mom with him this morning. That was pretty good. You're going to be doing more of it. Now we found you out. No running now. Heather can really sing too. She's next. Um, Pastor Tim is not here this morning. Some people do anything to get out of work. And uh, he ran up to Maryland. He's, he's in district meetings. Uh, whatever. So this morning you got me. Uh, oh, <laughs> thanks. That was, I don't know what to think about that. Uh, anyways, so we, uh, we've been talking about the red letters here, and I want to tell you a couple of stories, but if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Luke chapter 15, and um, if you don't have a Bible, and if you don't, if there's not one in the pew in front of you, it's actually in the bulletin, like you were probably given a piece of paper when you came in, so most of the scriptures listen in there. When I was a sophomore in college, went to Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville, and uh, yeah, got, got one left here, all the rest of them already bailed, but uh, we, on spring break, now spring break that year for some reason fell in February, so it was still cold. Me and my friend Randall, who is an absolute redneck, he, uh, he's from L.A., okay, which is lower Alabama, and uh, he, he wears the ugly hat with the scarlet letter A on it, and um, anyways, we decide we're going to have like some adventure on our spring break, and so, so he and I, we ride down to his house in Alabama, and we do some rock climbing, we do some cliff jumping, and uh, then we drive over to my house in Mississippi, and my uncle owns some canoes on the Bogachitta River, uh, which I know sounds as country as it gets, probably write a song about it someday, but uh, anyways, so we go to the, the Bogachitta River, my uncle owns canoes, now a couple of days before we got there, there was a tornado, now the tornado blew trees all across the river, and there was a lot of rain that came with it, and because it was late February, the water was still ice cold, and it was about three to four feet higher than what it normally is, and it was rushing. It was going fast, but we didn't care because it was spring break. Spring break, it was, I don't remember what year it was, but we were like, yeah, spring break, you know, those kind of guys. So, uh, so we rolled down. Uh, my uncle puts the canoe in my pickup truck, and we rolled down to the takeout spot, and he tells us, he says, listen, you guys, you probably shouldn't take this trip because we haven't gotten, we haven't had a chance to, you know, cut the trees, you know, up that have fallen into the river, and the river is, when he saw it, when we got to the takeout spot, he says, this might be the fastest I've ever seen this river going. It was like whitewater rafting, okay, from the River Wild or something, and so we didn't care, though. It was spring break. We only get a week off, so we're like, listen, we're going. And my uncle says, listen, this trip should take you about five hours. Now, because of the speed of the river, you might be able to cut about two hours off of that. But, uh, you know, just in case you guys choose to, you know, take lunch on a sandbar or something, he said, in five hours, I'll be at the takeout spot. If you haven't gotten there in five hours, I'll send a search party for you. Like, we'll come up the river with the motorboat and, uh, and see, you know, pull your bodies out. Well, uh, we get in the water. And already, when we're getting the boat in the water, the water's starting to take the boat away from us. We have an ice chest in there that's got, like, grilled chicken and stuff like that in there. Well, we get in, and I'm in the back because I'm the smarter of the two. He's from Alabama, obviously. Well, the back, if you've ever been in a canoe, is—sorry, Kayla. Anyone else from Alabama? 
the back of the canoe is, is how you steer the canoe, okay? Have you ever been in a two-person canoe? That's how you steer the thing. Well, uh, I'm rudder on the left and the right, and he was, he, my uncle was telling the truth. There were, there were logs, and there were limbs, and there were branches. There were trees all in the river, and the river was going really quickly. So we decided to stay as much to the middle of the river as we could. That would be the deepest part. There wouldn't be as, as many trees to dodge there. So we're dodging as many as we can. The river's going really fast. And by about 20 minutes into this trip, we're like Olympic rowers. We're great. At, we're professionals at this, okay? Until we come around the bend. Now, when we came around the bend, there was about 15 seconds that actually seemed like they took about 30 minutes to happen in my head. We come around the bend, and there's a pine tree that's about as big as this section right here that's all the way across the river. Now, the river's pretty wide because the water's up so high. There's no way that we could get to the right or left. And all I can remember my uncle saying, we've only been in the river for 20 minutes, all I can remember my uncle saying is, we'll send a search party out for you about five hours from now. I'm thinking, I'm going to be in this water for four and a half hours. My friend Randall was the only one to come up with an idea and why it sounded, you know, like a decent idea to me. I don't know. Uh, but he says, listen, let's just hit the tree straight on, right in the middle, and I'll put my hands on the tree and I'll stop us. It was the only option that we had. I mean, well, I don't, it didn't sound intelligent to me, but it's the only thing that we could do, okay? So, so sure enough, we hit it. I hear the tree kind of bending a little bit. Like I hear kind of the in the tree. And then it doesn't take long till we just get sweeped to the right, like the boat hits, and we get turned to the right, and the boat sucked underneath, my friend Randall sucked underneath, and I look up as my body's going into the water, I feel, I feel the blister, like that's how cold it is, my whole body feels blistered, I grab onto this branch that's about this long and about this wide, uh, it was a twig, people, okay, and so I grab onto it, my legs are under the water, and all I got is like my, my nose. It's a good thing I have a big nose that I can still breathe a little bit. And everything's under the water, sweeping underneath the log. And I try to pull myself out. And as soon as I try to pull up, crack. And now I'm in the water, the whole body, all right? I go under, muddy water all in my eyes, can't see anything but brown water. On the other side, my heart's, get on the other side of the tree. My heart's pounding. My skin is just ice. I come up out of the water. I look to the right. I see my friend Randall rolling down the river. I look to the left and I see the boat. So I swim to the boat. I'm able to grab the boat. At one point, we get to, I get to the side and I'm able to pull it. I, I'm able to stand up a little bit and I'm able to drag the boat that's full of water onto the sandbar. And I look over at my friend Randall and he's like, he at, at this point had gotten to waist deep water as well. And he says, Elmar, I lost my hat, his lucky Alabama hat. And so he jumps back in the river for his lucky Alabama hat. I told you he was a redneck, okay? So he's swimming down the river. I'm trying to get the water out of the boat. He has to, like, he loses his hat forever. He's almost crying over it. Well, anyways, he's got to jump back in the river to swim back to the boat. We decide at that point we're going to eat, and then we're never going to get back in the water like that again, all right? We're going to stay in the boat and not get back in the water like that. That's a good plan, all right? Better than the first plan you had, Randall. So we get back in the boat, we start rolling down the river, and for about two hours, we are Olympic rowers again. I'm in the back, he tries to convince me, hey, I, I should be in the back this time. No way. Your eye, never mind. So we're rolling down the river, we're dodging branches, dodging trees, all kinds of stuff. 
it was great. This is like the day was beautiful. It was like 75 degrees. It was great. We stop again just to kind of rest. We look around. We do some cliff jumping. There's like a cliff there. We jump off into the river. And then we're about to get back in the boat. And why I was able to be swayed by his redneck logic. He says, hey, listen, I should give this a try now. I should be in the back, you know, and, you know, just in case anything ever happens that I might need to steer sometime. And I was like, all right, yeah, okay, you can be in the back. You can steer the, the canoe now. Bad idea. We might have been back on the river for two minutes when I tell him, hey, listen, rudder right. And he rudders just right into this stump. The boat goes straight up. I come over him. I see like Randall's right here. I come over the top of him airborne. Randall winds up in the water again, heart pounding, skin blister, trying to just get out of the water. I swim over to this branch. I climb out on this limb, and I look lower on the limb, and there's Randall, where's the boat? He's like, I don't know. I was just trying to get out of the water. I was like, listen, I got the boat the first time. You got to get it now. We look down the river, and there's no boat. Our lifeline is gone. And Randall, like, lost his paddle down the river, too. Redneck. Well... We try to walk down the banks of the river because seriously, it's still going to be another, you know, two and a half to three hours before my uncle sends out the search party for us. We start walking down the banks of the Bogachetta and things just, because of the tornado, it was just thick brush all the way down the river. And so we couldn't walk. And I mean, we probably could have gone a little further, but I have this intense fear of snakes. And so uh, I was like, this is not a good idea. And so, so we talk about it. What's our options? Okay. Our options are to just sit here on this branch or jump back in the river. Try to go as far as we can down the river. Maybe we'll find the boat. Don't know why that made sense to me either. We jump in the river. We're swimming. We're hitting trees and rocks and logs, all kinds of stuff. We're getting scraped up, scratched up. River's going so fast. And then the river bends to the right again, and there's a swamp to the left. And stuck in the mud... What do I see? A shiny, beat-up canoe. And I was happy, happy, happy. I had never seen, like, I had never had experience. Now, I've lost things before. Like, like one time I lost 10 bucks. Like, I went to a funeral, and uh, I had this jacket, and kids don't wear, like, they don't dress up, you know. But I went to a funeral, and my uncle gave me 10 bucks. And I put it in the coat of my jacket, and then I couldn't find the 10 bucks until there was another funeral about a year later. And I was sitting there in the service, and people were crying, and I reached into this jacket, and I was like, yeah, oh. <laughs> 10 bucks, I found it again. That's the only, like, joy I experienced, I guess, but never, like, something this valuable to me had I lost and found it again. Like, it was lost, and now it's lost no more, and if there would have been people around, I know it was, like, deep in the woods of Mississippi, but uh, they would have all heard me. I was screaming like I just won the publisher's clearinghouse. We found the boat. That which was lost was lost no more. All right, turn your Bibles. We're going to hear some more stories about lost things, okay? What's up, baby girl? You going to come up here? Come on. Come on. All right. You want the microphone too? Juice? She needs a refill, Ryan. 
That's what, that's what she's wanting right there. <laughs> well, come on up. Come on up. We'll do this together. Do you know how to read yet? Uh-oh, dress, dress. <laughs> Some things you could never script. All right, so read this. You ready? Let's start right there. All. It's cool. You want to come with me? Ugh. Here you go, Papa Bear. Bye-bye, Lily. <laughs> See, that's how we, we should have took the offering after that. Jesus, here's the setting. Jesus is sitting with sinners and tax collectors. He's sitting with harlots, prostitutes. The, the people that should not deserve God's love, that's where Jesus is sitting. And now, the beginning of chapter 15 starts like this, okay? All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. Him is Jesus. And the Pharisees, now the Pharisees are like the snooty church people. They know the law. They keep the law outwards. They know everything about it. Jesus will several times call them hypocrites. He says that you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're beautiful, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. That you can keep a law on the outside. And so essentially, have you ever been sized up? Anybody ever gave you the up-down? Like, yeah, there are people that do this to me on a regular basis, okay? And I realize that it's because I've been working out lately and they like what they see, all right? But like judgmental eyes, that's how it is. Like they are looking at them like the kingdom of God is for us, not for them. And so Jesus should be hanging with us and he should not be sitting and spending his time. What kind of a man is this that spends time with sinners and tax collectors? The company that he keeps is not up to the standard that we think that God should be hanging out with. This is the third time that Jesus is criticized for hanging out with sinners. First time, Levi, who's a tax collector, has a banquet after he becomes a believer, and Jesus is criticized for hanging out with tax collectors. The second time is when Jesus is having dinner again with uh, Simon, who's also a Pharisee, and a harlot comes in. Everyone knows what a harlot is, right? I don't need to like describe these kind of things to you, right? All right, cool. Everyone's awkward, like, oh, please don't, please don't describe what that is. <laughs> she comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. So now here Jesus is again being criticized for sitting with sinners, for people who should not be worthy of the kingdom of God. And the story starts out like this. So he told him this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave ninety-nine in the open field to go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who do not need repentance. Jesus has two audiences. One audience is the sinners that he's hanging out with that long to come and talk to him, that long to hear the things that are coming from his mouth, and they long to be healed, and they long to be changed by him. 
The other audience that he has are the Pharisees, those that know the law already and that feel that they're already keeping the law outwardly to what God has called them to do. These are the two audiences that he has. And so imagine how this story sounds to them. Let's just hear the story again like this. Now, sheep were kept as a community. So let's say we all, you know, we all live in St. Pete, and so we need to designate two people to be our shepherds. And so we designate a couple of shepherds, and they keep all of our sheep. It's not just my sheep that, that they're shepherding. They're shepherding all of our sheep. And one day, all the sheep are together, but one wanders off. Because this typically happens. Sheep wander off. Why? Because sheep are... Yeah, thanks. So, so one of the sheep wanders off. All the sheep are brought back into the community. They're brought back into the town. And we get word back that there's one shepherd out in the countryside, out in the sticks, out in the cut, that is looking for the lost sheep. We would stay up all night until he came back. We would wait for his return, and we would look for him, and we would see him coming a long way off, and he would have the sheep on his shoulders. He would have this lost sheep on his shoulders. And when we would see him, someone would spread the word, and everyone would come out, and by the time he reached the town, everyone was celebrating because the shepherd went to find this lost sheep, and we all would rejoice. The second story he tells, and I'm just going to summarize this because you've been sitting here for a while, okay? The second story that he tells is about a woman who loses, she has 10 coins, 10 silver coins, and she loses one of them. And this is what Jesus says, will she not sweep the entire house until she finds it? And when she's found it, will she not call all her friends and neighbors together and say, rejoice with me, because I found my lost coin. So let's just imagine this, a Palestinian woman has 10 silver coins, now, a Palestinian house looks like this. It's kind of like this gondola here would be our only source of light because the sun would shine through. And the floor would be built of a couple of boards, but mainly brush and a thatch. That would be our flooring so that we didn't sleep in the mud. And so this Palestinian woman loses a coin in the floor. She has 10 of them, and she loses one. Now, a silver coin is not worth a ton of money. It's about what she would have made in a day. But she begins to sweep her whole house because here's the thing, all she has is 10. And if she loses one, to, to lose one coin, there are small things that separate hunger and starvation. And so she must sweep this house because it's valuable to her. So she begins to sweep the whole house, looking in the corners so that she can see just the shimmer of that, that small silver coin. Have you ever lost anything? You ever lost something valuable? You ever had someone away from you? You look for them. Anybody ever been lost, like in a mall? Had your parents left you or something? Okay. I won't tell those kind of stories. She looks the whole house, and when she finally sees that shimmer, she reaches down and she grabs the silver coin. She calls all of her friends together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. And the last story starts like this. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Let me stop right there. A son 
comes to his father. Now, typically, a father would, when he gets older, he would distribute his estate among his sons. Now, Hebrew law would say that the older son gets two-thirds and the younger son gets one-third. But you can't ignore the rudeness of of what he asked for. You You can't ignore how curt this son is to his father. Essentially, this is what he says. Let's imagine Adrian comes to his dad, Bruce, and he says, Bruce, I just want you to die just so I can get what you got. That would be pretty, that would, wrong, that would be wrong, okay? That would be very rude, that would be mean, that would be just, that's not cool, okay? But the father obliges. I want you to underline this word, and by the way, it is okay to write in your Bible, just don't like scribble and stuff, draw pictures, but it's not a sin, okay? I want you to underline this word, them. So he, dist- so he distributed the assets to them. And that will become important to you in a couple of minutes, okay? Not many days later, this is verse 13, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country. I want you to underline distant country. Because essentially, this is what happens. The Word of God says this, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. That we all have turned our backs on God. That we all have sinned. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Sin is this, that which separates us from God. It's a willful act against God. You know the good that you should do and you do not do it. And when that happens, that separates you from God. You essentially leave God's covenant, you leave his house, and you wander to a far off distant country. Now for some of you, that distant country is, is a wild lifestyle. It's drugs, it's relationships, it's alcohol. For some of you, it's just, just turning your back and doing your own thing. It it doesn't always have to be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But all of us have a distant country that we've been to. All of us have left God's house. We've turned our backs on him. Paul will say this, that Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. I beg to disagree because I think I got you, Paul. Paul has been a murderer. All of us have gone to a distant country. Make sense? So yeah. I need a little more like church feedback, okay? All right, cool, cool. I have to get the baby back up here. Where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. And essentially, this is where most of us come. We get to the point where we have nowhere else to turn and we have nowhere else to look but to say, I've messed everything up. I've spent every single thing that I have. I've tried to do things my own way. Now I have nothing else to do but to look back to the Father. I have nowhere else to go but to look and to turn to God. And a lot of you have been in this place. A lot of you have said, I've messed things up so much that my life doesn't look like what I thought it was going to be. You see, when this young son, when the younger son takes off, he has dreams and aspirations. He has plans of what he's going to make his life look like. But when he finds himself not living those things out, he comes to his senses. Verse 15, then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carapods, the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. And when he came to his senses, there, there's a moment that, that he has an awakening. A light bulb goes off. And he realizes this. He said, how many of my father's hired hands 
have more than enough food. Here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, I've tried to call my mom and my grandma before, like playing jokes on them, because that's what I do to people. Uh, I'm sorry, like I apologize to all my friends. Jake, I'm going to really get you back one day. I owe you for real a couple times. Yeah. But I try to like play, but my, my mom and my grandma, they always know my voice. They always know that it's me that's calling. What do you want? As they say, you know, stop playing. They always know it's me. I can imagine this father who knows what his son looks like. When you're, those parents that are in the room, you know what your child walks like. You know what they look like. You know the outline. And so I can imagine this father who has not just been waiting in his house. I can imagine this father every single day going out to wait and hope for his son's return. This is not like a normal father. You see, the normal image of God is that we come crawling back and begging him. But the image that we're giving here, that we're given here of God, is of a God who loves us and he's longing and waiting for our return. The image that we're given in the first two stories about the sheep and about the coin is a God that pursues us and a God that loves us so much that he sees value in us. So I can imagine this father every single day going to look for his son, and one day he sees the outline of his son, and while his son was still a long way off, I want you to underline that, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion, underline this part, he ran. That should not be something that the father does. You see, the son is the one who offended the father. The son is the one who asked for the estate. And the son is the one who's coming back with nothing now. Yet the father is the one that has compassion. Yet the father is the one that runs back to him. The father is the one who's been longing for his return. So he forgets who's right and wrong. He doesn't care. That's what compassion does. That's what the compassion of the father does threw his arms around his neck, kissed him. The son said to him, the speech that he's been rehearsing the whole way home, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, he interrupts, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. Now his older brother was in the field. Wait, wait. Before I get to the older brother, Jesus had two audiences, remember? The first son is the sinners that he's sitting with. The story that he tells you can imagine the joy that, that the first audience has. Those sinners that are sitting around Wow, we would be welcomed back into the Father's house after all that we have done. After, after us chasing after different things of this world, now we would be welcomed back to the Father's house so much that God himself would sit and eat with us. The second audience is the Pharisees. Those that already had 
the law, those that had God's blessings, who thought that they did not need to associate with their brother, the sinner. Here we are, 25. Now, his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry, and he didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Underline the word pleaded. His father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter the fatted calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. I want you to underline everything I have is yours. Remember when the father divided the assets? He gave the younger son his, but it says he distributed the assets to them. So now he has given the older son his share of the inheritance as well. And so literally what he's saying, everything that I have, everything that's left, it really does belong to you. Everything is in your hands. My whole estate belongs to you. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God forbid that we would ever become a church, that we would ever become a place that people, no matter their background, no matter what they look like, no matter how long their heels are, how short their dress is, or whatever they may have going on in their life, how much ink they got on their body. God forbid the day that we would have a Pharisee attitude, that we somehow became self-righteous, that somehow we are now worthy of the kingdom of God, and they are not. You see, this is what, this is what the father, he refers to him as a son, but then when the brother refers to The younger son, he says, this son of yours. He doesn't call him his brother. And so God forbid the day that we would no longer see people as our brothers, no matter their skin color, their hairstyle, no matter what is going on in their lives. God forbid the day that Victory Church or anyone in the faith would ever say that I deserve something more than someone else. And so now the kingdom of God should not be for sinners. It should only be for me, and I will keep it to myself. God forbid the day that would ever happen that would ever happen here. I wonder what would happen if I just hired someone to walk in our doors that looked like she came off of the pole. I wonder how we would treat them. I wonder what they would feel like. I wonder if we would have that same attitude or if we would be a place that welcomes people of all backgrounds because guess what we are also we've been saved by the grace of God the mercy of the father has reached us and so now that's our responsibility because that's our brother I think that this story has been called the wrong thing for hundreds of years now this story has been called the story of the lost son or it's been called the 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 story of the prodigal son But you see, the son is not the hero in the story. The son and his sin and his wandering is not the focus of the story. 
It's not the most amazing part because guess what? Sons wander off. People turn their backs on fathers. It happens all the time. What is so amazing about the story is the love of the father. And so the story shouldn't be called the story of the lost son. It should be called the story of the loving father. Because God has shown us all love. God has been the one to pursue us. God has been the one to stay out waiting for us and longing for your return to come home. And so if there are two audiences here this morning I want to speak to us. If you are away from God, if by your own fault, if by your own commission, if by your own actions you have walked away from God and you have left his house and you have left the, the covenant, you have left the life that he would have for you, and by your own acts and by your own sin you have separated yourself from God, I beg you to come to your senses because the Father is willing to take you home. The second crowd to the Pharisees and hopefully to some of us former Pharisees would say we long to have every brother that we can come into the family. We long to have them come back for those of, those of you that are parents that have children, for those of you that are children that have parents that are away from God, for those of you that have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and friends that do not know God or that are living apart from the will of God, we are to be their brothers and we are to beg for their return as well. And then our other responsibility is to celebrate and rejoice because of the love of the Father. I want to close with the story and then, then we'll sing. Debbie's going to cue up a video. It's about a, a man named Rick Hoyt. Rick Hoyt was born in 1962. And right before he was born, the umbilical cord got wrapped around his neck and he was deprived of oxygen for so long at birth that he was born with cerebral palsy. And essentially this means that now his, his limbs do not function because the, he was, his brain was deprived of oxygen for so long. He can't speak and he can barely move his arms and his legs. He would forever be a vegetable, is what the doctor said. And they urged his parents to have him institutionalized. But the parents would see Rick's eyes following them all over the room. And they knew that he was smart. And so the mom began to teach him the alphabet with sandpaper letters. When he was 11 years old, they got together with a doctor from Boston. There are some good things that come from Boston, okay? <laughs> they got together with a doctor from Boston, and he created a computer so that Rick could lean his head against it, and he would click it. And it would pull letters up, and he would begin to spell things out. And the first thing that he spelled was go Bruins because they were going to the Stanley Cup. He spells out to his father a little bit later. He saw in the newspaper that there was a, there was a race coming up, a, a running, uh, like a 10K. And so he asked his father, would he push him in the race? Now Dick Hoyt was 37 years old at the time. He had never been a runner. He was a retired military guy. He decided that he would train and he would do it. So he pushed his son in this race. And then, eventually, they would do more races together. Rick would say to his dad, when you push me, when we're racing, when we're running together, I don't feel handicapped. I feel alive. And so he asked his dad to do 
the Ironman triathlon with him. It's 140.6 miles of swimming, biking, and then a whole marathon running. Now, I don't want to drive that far. You're about to see the story of Rick and Dick Hoyt in the Ironman triathlon. Because of the love of the Father, because he is the hero of this world, and because of the love that he has poured on us. You see, Rick couldn't make himself run this race. It's no, no more than I could change my own life. No more than, than I could save myself. You see, a dead man can't make himself live, but God can breathe life into you. God can give you a new life. And so this morning, if you found yourself at the end of everything that you've had, if you found that every plan that you've had has failed, if you have found yourself away from God, I plead with you, I beg you to return to God. James is going to come and we're going to sing. If you want to pray, here's the thing. I, I, I believe that that speech that he had rehearsed, the Father cut him off. God sees your heart, and so as soon as you make a move, as soon as you are willing to return home, the price has already been paid. Christ has already died on the cross for your sins. So all you need to do is return home. All you need to do is say, God, I repent of my sins. I'm sorry. And you are welcomed back. You are given a new life. The Word of God says if anyone is in Christ, then he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So this morning, this is your invitation to come home. Let's all stand together. Let's pray together. If you'd like to come and kneel at an altar and pray to God, you're welcome to do so. That's a place that you can just give your heart to God. It doesn't have to happen here. But I encourage you to do so, and God sees that act of obedience. He sees that step that you take. If you'd like to make your own seat there, if you'd like that to make, it, make that your place of prayer, it's fine as well. Let's pray together. God who's alive, I love you. I thank you for your love and I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your forgiveness and even though I have been, I've been utterly rude and I have left your house and I have gone my own way and I've gone astray, you have pursued me. You have searched for me. And you've longed for my return. And God, I thank you for your forgiveness. Something that I know is very real. God, I know that those that came into this place carrying burdens, they don't have to leave out of here with them. So God, I pray that we would lay all those things at your feet this morning. God, I pray that, that every single thing that we came in here with, that bag that we carry around with us, we'd be able to lay that at your feet. God, I thank you for your love. God, for those of us here that, that have been like the second brother and we can associate ourselves, God, I pray that you would forgive us as well. And I pray that you forgive our judgmental attitudes and I pray that you forgive us for thinking that somehow that, that the pursuit of the lost sheep should, should be called off and the, and the search for the lost coin should be ceased and the hope that the Father had for the return should be given up on. Help us to join in that. Help us to join in the search, the pursuit, and the longing. 
God, for those, for those loved ones that don't know you and that don't know your love and that don't know your forgiveness and that are not living and walking in the light, God, I pray for them. I pray for them to come home. And God, one day we will rejoice for their return. We will celebrate and we will throw a party because they have come home. We trust you for that, God. God, I pray that you would soften their hearts, that we would be able to speak to them and share the right things with them in the right time, that they would be receptive to it. But God, even between now and then, I pray that we'd be faithful praying for them. Help us to long for our brother's return. God, we love you and we need you. Go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in the name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen. Go in peace and make a difference. You're dismissed.